BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. Colonel Douglas McGregor joins us today. Colonel McGregor is at the uh, Our Country, Our Choice facility in Florida, and the studios there are currently being used, so we couldn't get him in front of a camera, but he is kind enough to uh, speak to us through uh, computers and, uh, and telephones. Uh, so you won't actually see him live, but you'll hear his voice. Colonel McGregor, it's a pleasure, my dear friend. Thank you for joining us. Colonel, are you there? Yes, absolutely. Can you not hear me? Okay, got it. We hear you loud and clear now. Colonel, earlier uh, today, there were reports that the United States government wants to move the government of Ukraine out of Kyiv and to a city west uh, of Kyiv. Uh, do you know if those reports are accurate? And if so, what would that tell you? Well, this report uh, supposedly came from Asia Times via the, the Department of Defense. Someone in the Department of Defense pointed out that when the fighting ends, and apparently there's an expectation that the fighting will end, the Ukrainian government will abandon Kiev and go west to the town of Lviv or Lvov in Russian, uh, which is not unusual. It's it's been the capital before, certainly of uh, the western Ukraine, and it, it it makes sense given the likely proximity of Russian forces to Kiev uh, once the fighting stops. Is uh, Ukraine on its last legs, Colonel? Oh, yes. It, Ukraine's been on life support for a long time. I mean, earlier today, I was talking with someone over there and they said if Washington had any humanity or humility, they would end this tragedy as soon as possible. You know, more people continue to die needlessly. Uh, and a million people have been casualties in this war. We have 500,000 dead as noted by the uh, Ukrainian prosecutor general just a, a week and a half ago. And we have at least 500,000 wounded, and how many uh, of them will never be able to live normal lives as anyone's guess, but the casualties have been horrific. And Ukraine is exhausted. It's exhausting its manpower. And the longer this lasts, the more Ukrainians will leave Ukraine, which is a catastrophe for the country and for the Ukrainian nation. Colonel, as we speak, uh, President Biden is negotiating 
with Republican leaders in the House of Representatives in an effort to come up with some sort of a, a deal. I, I know it's an issue that is of concern to you and to me and to a lot of people watching us, and that's the southern border. But the part of the deal that I want to ask you about involves 86 or 68 million to Ukraine. What would they do with 68 uh, million? They, they need human beings that are simply not available to operate any new, as far as, far as I understand it, any new equipment that Washington might send over there. Well, I, I think, Judge, you mean $68 billion, do you I'm not? I'm sorry, not you are billion. right. Billion with a B. Thank you. Yeah. Well, remember that uh, from the standpoint of people on the Hill who are largely disinterested in what happens on the ground in Ukraine, uh, most of this cash will simply be recycled as it has been to this point uh, to purchase weapons and equipment from the Department of Defense, which in turn transfers the money to the defense industries, and the defense industries profit enormously. You know, the president himself made the point that this is good for America because it keeps assembly lines humming and large numbers of Americans employed and so forth. Well, that may be true. Uh, but the point is, it's not going to change the facts on the ground in Ukraine. The facts on the ground are that Ukraine has lost this war. And at least half of the country will now be occupied by the Russians, I, I suspect, permanently. So that's the first reality. The second part of this is that I'm sure a lot of this money will be uh, used to pay the bureaucrats in Kiev and elsewhere in Ukraine to keep the proverbial trolleys and trains running. But several billion, I'm sure, will disappear, as has happened in the past, end up in bank accounts in places like Cyprus or the, you know, the Bahamas or elsewhere in the world, places where money comes in and goes out without being carefully tracked. So they're laundering money uh, to their friends who are in part of this organized crime state that we're pretending is a real nation state called Ukraine. One of our uh, guests uh, referred to Israel and Ukraine. I, I don't want to get into Israel just yet, but he used this phrase, which I found very interesting, and I want to ask you about it. Refer to Israel and Ukraine as client states of the United States. Do you accept that uh, description? And if so, what does that mean? Well, I certainly think it applies to Ukraine as far as being a client state is concerned. A client is simply someone who who uh, is dependent upon you for income and support. And, you know, I think a better word would probably be vassal. But, you know, the Ukrainian leadership is definitely a client of the United States. There's no question about it. They, that entire apparatus would not exist if Victoria Newland and her friends had not installed it uh, after the Maidan revolution. So certainly since 2014, there's no other way to look at it, although I think the word vassal increasingly is more accurate, since I'm sure there are very few Ukrainians at this point who are prepared to go out and die for this client state. Now, Israel's a little bit different because, frankly, we often wonder whose client is who, is whose client. In other words, are we not the client of the Israeli state, or is the Israeli state the client of the United States? It, it is confusing and difficult to establish because, as I pointed out routinely, at this stage of our history, I think President Netanyahu has infinitely more influence over the conduct of our foreign and defense policy than President Biden. 
And despite whatever President Biden has said publicly or whatever, you know, the Secretary of State Blinken has said, uh, there's not much evidence that anything has happened that Mr. Netanyahu does not want to happen. But, you know, calling them both client states is not unreasonable. It's just, I think, in Israel's case, we need to try and sort out that relationship. Who, who's who's the client? Uh, before we get to Israel, I, I want to play two cuts for you. Now, I know you can't see them, but you'll hear them and you'll recognize the voices. Uh, the first uh, is Secretary Blinken saying Putin has failed. Uh, this is at the uh, Davos uh, conference in Switzerland last week. Uh, the second is Foreign Minister Lavrov on CBS News acting, in my view, about as statesmanlike as you can imagine. The reason I'm asking you this is because uh, two of our uh, guests, one a political hothead and former uh, colleague of mine from Fox, Bill O'Reilly, the other, Jack divine they're on the same side on this they both have denied emphatically that there was ever any kind of an agreement from uh turkey uh in march of uh, 22 uh they both have denied that president putin has the slightest interest uh in negotiating a settlement here i think those denials are absurd and are borne by their uh, political uh, views but hearing blinken and hearing Lavrov will allow you to elaborate on this. First, Blinken, Putin has failed, and then Foreign Minister Lavrov on CBS News. Putin has already failed in what he set out to do. He set out to erase Ukraine from the map, to eliminate its independence, to subsume it into Russia. That has failed, and it cannot and will not succeed. Yeah. Second, uh, Ukraine has not only stood up to the aggression. Over the past year, it took back more than 50% of the territory that had been taken from it in February of 2022. The last year, uh, the last part of the last year has been challenging, but even then, something that got little notice, what Ukraine managed to do in the Black Sea, opening it up, pushing the Russian Navy back, and starting to get grain out to the world. It's been the breadbasket of the world. It's gone back to that as a result of action. Anybody who is sincerely interested in justice, uh, including justice being established in the relations between Russia and Ukraine, uh, which would involve, of course, stop, uh, stopping the Western policy of using Ukraine as an instrument of war against Russia, we would be ready to listen. President Putin repeatedly said that it is not true when somebody is saying that Russia is against negotiations. Actually, uh, Anthony Blinken said this in Davos uh, a few days ago. It is not true. Russia was always emphasizing that any serious proposal which would include the discussion of the situation on the ground, of the origin of this situation, and of reaching a solution which would guarantee legitimate national interests of Russia and Ukrainian people, we would be ready to discuss it. Now, I know you couldn't see them, but Lavrov comes off uh, as a patient academic with a razor-sharp analysis of the issues, and Blinken came off as a nervous wreck. <laughs> 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Well, I think uh, Anthony Blinken has turned out to be a professional liar, and he's not alone. Uh, he's surrounded by them, and they're all deeply in denial. No one wants to admit the truth, which is that, first of all, we goaded Russia into attacking Ukraine. We, over the objections of the Russians for practically 20 years, have pushed this NATO border issue as far as we possibly could. Not because it was in the interest of the United States or the American people supported it, but this small minority uh, that is in control of your foreign policy apparatus, and now also the Department of Defense, wanted to do it for reasons that have nothing to do with American national interest. I don't think Victoria Nuland or Anthony Blinken or any of their colleagues over the last 15 to 20 years could actually define what American interests are. It's back to this notion that we're fighting, uh, you know, sort of like Woodrow Wilson, the war to end all wars for democracy. Well, it's all nonsense. And wherever uh, our friend uh, Wilson tried to spread democracy, something else much less attractive emerged in its place. So Blinken has to be dismissed out of hand as simply a liar whose so-called facts are fantasies. Now, with Lavrov, Lavrov is a practical man. Uh, he's not... Uh, interested in a, a global revolution to spread anything. He simply wants to bring the war to an end because that's in uh, Moscow's interest and it's in the interest of the Ukrainian nation. Uh, this is a war that never needed to happen. It could have easily been avoided had we had a shred of humanity and humility, but we don't. Uh, so we have arrogance and ignorance on steroids masquerading in statesmanship and what comes out at the other end of that process is a blatant lie. The truth is, yes, uh, Europeans have fought over many parts of Europe for many, many centuries. It's time to end this current war and come to a new uh, solution, which is going to involve a change in borders, something which we refuse to accept, but the Ukrainian people will accept because they know this is a lost war and to continue it means more deprivation, more tragedy, more killing, more dying because the Russians have lost nothing. When you look at the casualty figures, we estimate that the Russians have sustained between 80 and perhaps 100,000 casualties, less than half of whom involved uh, killed in action. In other words, somewhere in the neighborhood of 45,000, 46,000 men killed in action. Now, we've solved the problem in the West of telling the truth by simply lying and saying that the opposite is the case. But the facts on the ground tell us something else. And the facts on the ground will ultimately prevail, regardless of what 
Mr. Blinken or Miss Newland or any of the rest of these people bother to say. Switching uh, over to uh, Israel and uh, Gaza, uh, you may know this gentleman since you know uh, so many uh, Israeli and retired Israeli military. This is retired Major General Gadi Eisenkot, who at one point was the chief of staff of the Israeli army and is now a member of the Netanyahu War Cabinet, went on national television in Israel uh, and said the only way to get those hostages home uh, is a ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire. And by the way, it's time for new elections within the next 60 days because Netanyahu doesn't know what he's doing. He's fighting just to stay in power, uh, and it's time for him to go. How uh, critical is a statement like that from somebody as revered as Major General Eisenkot, who, by the way, lost his own son and a nephew uh, in the fighting in Gaza right around Christmas time. Well, General Eisenkot is a very capable man, uh, very intelligent, and he understands warfare probably better than most of his uh, peers. And what he's telling you is the truth, that those hostages are never coming back or certainly are not coming back in any, in any near term as long as this uh, war of expulsion and murder against the Palestinian people continues. And he is like many Israeli uh, general officers that, that you will meet. He is someone, as uh, Nassim Talib likes to say, who has skin in the game. In other words, he's not asking Israeli soldiers or Israeli citizens to do anything he and his own family would not also do. And so I, you know, my sympathy goes out to him. I think it's tragic that he's lost his son and his nephew. Uh, but I think he knows that this war is wrong-headed, and the longer it lasts, the more damage will be done to Israel. They're not going to expel or kill every Arab who lives in Gaza, although that is obviously the objective. And I, I think it's also true that in 60 days, uh, Netanyahu may no longer be there. However, having said all of that, I'm not convinced that the Israeli population is prepared to give up on this operation. In fact, I, I looked at this week offer of two-week ceasefire that uh, Mr. Netanyahu recently tendered to the uh, Palestinians or to Hamas, and many, many people concluded that this is a temporary ceasefire designed to give the Israeli Defense Force a breather so that it can assemble new, new forces for operations against Hezbollah in the north. Now, that, that, would, that would mean at least a two-front war. Many people would think of it as a three-front war because uh, the West Bank of Palestine is in, is in uh, upheaval, and we should expect more troops required there to suppress the Arab population. And then, of course, there's also the high probability that if you go to war with Hezbollah, that you then risk war with Iran. And Mr. Netanyahu is nothing if not desperately committed to dragging us into war with Iran on, on his behalf. So while I agree with Eisenkot, and I pay tribute to him for the courage of his convictions, and again, I express my sincere condolences to him for the losses, uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that Netanyahu will retain his grip on power and drive this offensive forward, not just in Gaza, but also uh, against Hezbollah. Uh, on Monday evening of this week, uh, the IDF uh, was preparing 
the controlled demolition of a building uh, in Gaza. Uh, and there are 21 IDF in the building, packing it with explosives uh, when Hamas attacked a tank outside the building. Whatever happened with the explosion on the tank detonated the explosives in the building, and all 21 IDF died, and another six died by uh, collaterally. So you have 27 IDF uh, deaths in about a three-minute uh, time period. Uh, how critical uh, is something like that for a small, basically, citizen army? Well, it's extremely critical. And, uh, you know, the way to look at it is if it happened to us uh, as a nation of over 300 million, that you're, you're talking about losses in the neighborhood for the entire operation in Gaza uh, of perhaps 50,000 or more killed. Mm. Uh, so this is, this is devastating for the Israeli population that is very sensitive to these losses. You know, they can't replace these soldiers. And they have jobs in the civil economy, and they have families that can't replace their losses. You know, the average Israeli family is not very different in many respects from the average American or European family. They don't have families of seven or eight children because the Israelis, like us, are interested in quality of life. And uh, we live in, in a very complex societies that cost a great deal of money. And you can't afford to, to raise seven or eight children unless you're prepared to live on at the poverty line in most cases. So I, I think it's a very serious matter. And it's not going to get any better as long as this war lasts it's going to get worse. And I think that's beginning to sink in, but I still don't think it has sunk in with the majority of the population. Here's, um, again, you won't be able to see it, but here's a clip from, I think it's CNN International, uh, of demonstrators uh, outside the home uh, of Prime Minister Netanyahu. It, it, it's a report in English, so you'll be able to hear what's going on. Uh, and then I want to ask you a question about one of the demonstrators who was a physician uh, and what she uh, what she said to the prime minister. This demonstration held near the home of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu last night. His spokesperson says Netanyahu met with some hostage families yesterday after he rebuffed a Hamas hostage proposal over the weekend. Just hours after that meeting, the news outlet Axios reported the Israeli ceasefire offer. Now, that report says Israel's war cabinet approved the proposal 10 days ago. A CNN report today adds that Israel is offering senior Hamas leaders a chance to leave Gaza as part of the offer. Axios says Israel is waiting for a response from Hamas. There is no Israeli government comment on the reports officially. What one of the um, parents of one of the hostages is a, a physician. Afterwards, she referred to the Netanyahu government as this damned government. And she shrieked uh, at him because of what happened to her son. Her son uh, was IDF, uh, but was captured on October 7th. He was gassed to death with poison gas in one of the uh, Hamas tunnels by the IDF, along with two, two other non-IDF Israeli hostages. 
His body showed desperate signs of an effort to escape the chamber he was in because he knew what was entering. He was familiar uh, with the uh, poison gas. How does something like this go over with the Israeli public? Poison gas of all things, bringing back horrific memories of the Holocaust used by the IDF knowingly on one of its own soldiers. Well, given the uh, hatred that animates most of the Israeli actions against Hamas or Hezbollah or other organizations of that type, uh, I don't think the Israelis would object very much to the use of poison gas. They would probably argue that anything which promises to reduce Israeli casualties and inflict the maximum number of casualties on Muslim Arabs is a good thing. I know that sounds harsh, but I think that's an accurate depiction of true feelings on the ground in, inside of Israel. The Israeli population remains behind this operation. They may not like Netanyahu for a whole range of reasons, and, and that's justified, I'm sure. But they support this, and they really think that these Arabs have to either be driven out or exterminated. Uh, and that's that's simply a fact. Um, do you think that the, that the Netanyahu government recognizes that there are limits to IDF brutality? You know, in, in this war at this point in time, I don't. Uh, it's very similar to the war in the Eastern Front uh, between uh, 41 and 45. The war turned into a ruthless war of extermination for both sides. And I think that's happening right now in Israel, in, uh, in Gaza, and probably elsewhere. I, you know, one of the things that hasn't been reported in the news, it seems unrelated, but it really is not, is the meeting today between the leadership of Iran and the leadership of Turkey. Right. And this is a watershed event that involves, uh, you know, two nations that historically have a long history of conflict and hostility. In fact, one of the reasons that Iran has been friendly towards Russia is that Russia and Iran both sh shared the same enemy. It's called Turkey. Uh, right now, there are open discussions about cooperation on many, many levels. And what they're doing is they're looking at the commonality of interest. And the commonality of interest extends to the elimination of the current Israeli leadership and perhaps the state. Uh, Israel is in a very tenuous position because these sorts of offers signal to the opposition in Hamas, and not just to them, but to hundreds of millions of Muslims in the region, that Israel is weak, not strong. And I think, if anything, they've concluded, based upon their interaction with the Israeli Defense Force at this point, that Israel is far, far more vulnerable than uh, anybody imagined. The real question in their minds is, where do we fit in? And I think they're assuming that if Israel does not come to some sort of agreement, which seems, frankly, unlikely, that uh, we will be drawn into the war on the side of Israel, and they will have to fight us as well. And I think that's why there are now discussions all over the region uh, between the various leaders about how they are going to cooperate in that event. I think that should give everyone in Israel and everyone in the United States real pause, because behind them, once again, stands 
Russia, and uh, nor distantly, but not remotely, China. And again, as I point out, the Chinese have a, a keen interest in supplying themselves at home with oil and natural gas and so forth that comes out of the Persian Gulf in that region, and also food out of West Africa. And they don't want to be cut off from that by a major war in the region. So they'll do everything they can to hinder it. But if it happens, they'll do everything they can to help uh, Iran and Turkey and Russia and anyone else who is engaged in that war against us and Israel. I think that's what we need to keep in mind. Colonel President Biden has uh, attacked the Houthis now seven times uh, in the past uh, 10 days. It doesn't seem to have dented them. However, does that not exacerbate what you just described? Oh, absolutely. Uh, There's no question about it. At every turn, we and uh, Israel have both done the same thing. We've escalated. Uh, when in doubt, escalate. I think that's the, the theory in Washington and the theory in, in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, there's no talk of any sort of serious discussion or peace arrangements or anything else because that's something that Washington will not accept. It's back to what you witnessed with uh, Anthony Blinken. Uh, it is escalate or nothing because it is either our way or the highway. That's the attitude in Jerusalem. It's the attitude in Washington. I think it's a very dangerous position to take, as we've discussed before, Judge, because we are not as strong as we once were. And our country is fragmented and divided in many ways, has serious economic problems, and is financially at high risk, even though, again, the the same people lying about Russia, lying about what's happening on the ground in the Middle East, are also lying about the true state of affairs of the American economy, the underlying fundamentals, and the financial issues. So I think uh, we're we're in a we're in a bad position because no one knows what to do other than to escalate, and escalation is where we're headed. And we're not prepared for a regional war, just as we were not prepared to supply Ukraine with the degree of support that it needed to fight a regional war against Russia. Uh, so we're we're not prepared, we're not organized, and that means we're going to escalate. I mean, it's it's incomprehensible to me as a professional soldier, but I don't think uh, rationality has much role in any of the decision making. There is no strategy. Everything is impulse driven, and the impulse in Washington is to attack and attack and attack and attack. And uh, it will eventually escalate into what I've been talking about earlier. The Houthis are on the outer edge, on the fringe, but they will not be alone as this develops. And they are not going to be easily defeated, as we've already seen. Colonel McGregor, thank you very much. I I know you have a busy uh, schedule, and I appreciate you taking the time to reach us, even by the means that you did. It's always a pleasure. I hope we can see you again, as in see you next week. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Judge. We'll do our best. Thank you, Colonel. Uh, All the best. Wow. Uh, Truly one of the most uh, insightful interviews I've been privileged to uh, be a part of. Uh, Coming up at 4.15, more firepower for you, uh, the inimitable Max Blumenthal, Judge Napolitano for Judging Freedom.